Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What a way to sum up a ministry. When you take a look at the book of Acts, and particularly in the 19th and the 20th chapters, what you find is you find Paul at Ephesus. It's very interesting to take a look at Paul's ministry at Ephesus because it was marked by many significant events. And there was Paul in Acts 19 in the beginning of the chapter. And what we see in a very real way is the power of the Spirit of God present in the ministry of Paul. There were those disciples of John the Baptist who had not heard that the Holy Spirit had yet been given. And Paul prays and they received the Holy Spirit. And Paul could have said and given a summary of his ministry at Ephesus. He could have said, do you remember the time when the Holy Spirit fell? It's a, it's a sickening time to be sure. But that's not really what Paul drew, drew his attention We could also see in Acts chapter 19 how that Paul's ministry was accompanied by great miracles. It's in that 19th chapter where we see that somewhat somewhat, uh, unexpected uh, presentation where handkerchiefs, uh, Paul's shadow fell on these handkerchiefs and individuals took them up and were healed. Now I hate to say this and I'm not trying to be funny in the least, but you can imagine in our day what individuals would do with handkerchiefs if the Spirit of God fell upon them and individuals would heal. What would they be doing? Well, sadly, what we see many doing in our day, don't we? We'll be on TV hawking these, these handkerchiefs. But Paul doesn't go there, does he? He doesn't say, did you see the, the Spirit anointed uh, preaching? Did you see, or excuse me, he, he didn't say, did you see the Spirit of God come? He didn't say, did you see these miracles? What does he say when he sums up his ministry? That he declared unto you everything that was needful. And I preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do from this passage of Scripture is I want to show to you, as I said before, that the gospel message is essentially that message which contains the message of repentance before God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that any preaching that takes place in the name of gospel preaching that does not contain repentance and faith is not preaching in the biblical sense of the word. It may be many other things, but biblical preaching it is not. And therefore, we have to make sure no matter where we go in the whole counsel of God, that we are never far removed from those twin realities of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, what I want to do is set before you, again, these ideas, really focusing on these twin graces of repentance and faith. And we'll take a look at that as we go on. But just quickly, I just want to briefly introduce this passage of Scripture to you. And I want you to see from this passage of Scripture in verses 20 and 21, what Paul is really doing is he is showing two things about his ministry. Number one, he is showing the nature of his ministry. And number two, he's showing the nature of his preaching. What did his ministry overall look like? And what we do and what we, uh, what we can see is we can see in verses 19 and 20 the following things. Notice again in these two verses, 19 and 20. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews and how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. The first thing I want you to see about the nature of Paul's ministry was essentially this. It had a twofold focus. Number one, the glory of God and number two, the good of the church. Notice in this passage of scripture again. Here was Paul serving the Lord with all humility of mind. His first focus in his ministry was the glory of God himself. And so all gospel preaching, all gospel ministry should have as its great focus the glory of God. But it didn't ignore the need of the church. Paul held back nothing that was profitable unto them, we see. 
Here again, as I said before, we see this in the 20th verse, how that I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house. You know, it'd be very interesting at this point maybe to break off into uh, just an overview of the book of Ephesians and see how that Paul preached in the book of Ephesians those fundamental truths of the the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 1, those great and exalted sentences that speak about our relation and our union with God through Jesus Christ. That wonderful opening section of Ephesians, uh, verses 3 through 14, which speaks about the Trinitarian work of God on on behalf of the church. All the way through, we see, again, this emphasis in the book of Ephesians. And again, we could talk about that. But the point that Paul is making here was essentially this. Anything necessary for the glory of God, he was engaged in. Anything necessary for the good of the church, he was engaged in. He held back nothing that was profitable unto the church. There's something else that we see about the nature of his ministry. In the nature of his ministry, we also see this, that it was a ministry that was marked by personal integrity, humility, and faithfulness. Notice again what we see here now in verse 21, testifying to both Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. In other words, this idea, what we see Paul doing, his work was a continual work of preaching. It was a continual work of preaching that kept nothing back. Again, this idea of honesty and integrity in his ministry. And so again, Paul, the nature of Paul's ministry were marked by these three great features. Number one, it was to the glory of God. Number two, it was for the good of the church. Number three, it was marked by personal integrity and even much costliness on Paul's part. And so that was the nature of his ministry in general. But he also kind of summarizes for us the nature of his preaching. And we see that in the, in the phrase that we've repeated a number of times already, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do here, as I said before, is I want to take a look at these ideas of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me to the primary point that I want to make today and what I would call the, our, our main proposition or our doctrine. And it's essentially this. There is no preaching of the gospel if the twin pillars of repentance and faith are absent. I'm going to say that again. There is no preaching of the gospel if the twin pillars of repentance and faith are absent. The twin pillars are, again, repentance toward God and faith in our our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why why do we need to know this in our day? Well, we need to know this in our day because our day, even though it is a secular day, it's a secular age, but our day is still a day where many religious voices are heard in the culture at large. You don't have to go far to hear religious voices in our day, religious messages in our day. And what I, want to, what I want you to be aware of is essentially this. There are some religious messages in our day that sound like the gospel, but are not the gospel. You need to be aware of that. If you have preaching that shies away from the need for personal repentance, whatever else that is, that is not the preaching of the gospel. And certainly if you have preaching that shies away from driving sinners to faith in Jesus Christ alone, that's not preaching the gospel either. And so there are many religious gospel, there are many religious uh, messages out there that sound like the gospel but are not the gospel. Secondly, we see there are religions in our day that preach a false religion. It's a religious message, but it's a false religion that's being preached. And in our day, we need to be able to discern between the two. We need to be able to hear when religious words and religious language is being used and religious dialogue is being entered into, is there an exaltation of Jesus Christ? Even again, as I said before, some of our, some of our messages today may sound very religious, 
We may hear people speak of great miracles, but are they speaking of repentance and faith? You understand the need to to see these twin pillars. And so Paul makes this emphasis. Thirdly, there are messages in our day that are not overtly religious, but they, if I can put it this way, they address themselves to the areas of humanity that once belonged exclusively to the domain of the gospel or to the domain of the church. And what am I talking about here? I'm talking about now the messages of philosophy and psychology. So many of the so many of the issues that people deal with today, they are not seeking answers before God for their issues. They're seeking human help, oftentimes the help of psychologists, oftentimes the philosophy of life that will help them to navigate life. And so because of all these things, what I'm saying to you is that we as the church of Jesus Christ, we who proclaim that message, we who have embraced that message of repentance toward God in faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, and you've done that, haven't you? You've come to that point where you've repented before God. You've come to that point where you've felt, if I can put it this way, the pressure, the pinch of your sins. You've come to that place where you understood that you don't need just help. You need a Savior, and that Savior is only in Jesus Christ alone. So again, you embrace this, and in your embracing of this, you proclaim this. And so because of that, you and I need to be able to proclaim it, and you and I also need to be able to evaluate the messages that we hear in our day. Now, a great part of the whole uh, concept of the grace being worked into the soul is the ability of the Spirit of God to enable us to do this in a very Christ-like fashion. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is for you the model of the Christian man? Aren't you glad that the model of the Christian man isn't just like some firebrand preacher that has just went around, uh, uh, nobody knew what to do with this guy because they couldn't handle him? Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ and all of his compassion, Jesus Christ and all of his, all of his firmness, Jesus Christ and everything that he is is the perfect man. He is the model of what the Christian is. And in that, Jesus Christ becomes your model and my model. As we press for repentance, we can do it in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ did. Sometimes he did it in a very stern way, didn't he? I say unto you, unless ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Other times he does it in a very tender way, doesn't he? There he is with that woman at the well. And how does he elicit repentance from her heart? Go and call your husband. She's left undone. She knows. And so again, the Lord Jesus Christ, may God through the Spirit give to each and every one of us grace for every situation that we find ourselves in. But let us never leave off either of the twin pillars of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these things become vital for us. And so what I want to do is uh, today in this sermon, I want to examine these pillars of gospel preaching and stress that they must be the basis for our ministry for Christ as well as to be the defining marks of what we have personally experienced. I want to say that again, that repentance and faith must be the marks, or the excuse, must be the basis of our ministry here at Nosset, but they also must be the marks of what we have personally experienced: faith, repentance, and faith. So, first of all, let's take a look then at this idea of repentance. And then what I want you to see in this passage of scripture, how the, Paul very clearly says in verse twenty-one, testifying to both Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that I want you to see is that this message of repentance and faith is a universal message. It is a message that goes to both Jews and the Greeks. 
This was the great division of humanity in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way that, that, uh, that biblical writers uh, uh, kind of comprehended all of the, of the world living at that time. You were either Jewish or Gentile. You were either in the covenant of God or you were outside of the covenant promises of God. And what Paul is saying essentially here is this. The message of repentance and faith is not a one-sided message. It's not only that the Gentiles need to repent. It's not only that the Jews need to repent. It's not only the people outside the church need to repent. It's not only the people inside the church need to repent. It's a universal message. It goes far and wide. Wherever sin is found, the message of repentance is needed. And that's what we're seeing here. Paul is testifying to both Jews and Greeks repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us to consider then what is repentance. And this is a key subject, isn't it? This is a very important thing. What is this whole thing that we call repentance? Well, I want to say a couple things by way of preliminaries, and then we'll get into some detail. The first thing I want you to know and understand is this, is that repentance is a whole work of God upon the whole soul of the person. It is a complete and entire work. While repentance will find its primary manifestations in the mind, and in the emotions, and in the will. And if we want, we can use those three terms to comprehend the whole of man. What I want you to see and understand is this, that in repentance, every area of the person is affected. There is no small room that is left by way of, unre- by way of not repenting, that every element of who and what we are is affected by repentance. The second thing I want you to see about this, again, we'll get into these particulars, that this is a duty that is pressed upon all men. Again, testifying to Jews and Gentiles everywhere. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. God commands it. You remember what Paul says in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, how the God commands all men everywhere to repent. And yet we find that this demand, this command to repent is not something that we can do in our individual natures. How can this nature of mine, which is so inclined to sin, find the hatred for sin in order to turn from it? That brings us to the next point. I have to be very careful with this. That brings us to the next point. And the next point is this, is that repentance is represented in the scripture as a gift of God. Very much it's like faith in this regard. Faith is that which God calls sinners to. Faith is that which is truly exercised within the soul of the individual. I feel like I've said this about faith. Faith as to its exercise is an act of the soul. Faith as to its origin is the gift of God. You truly believe. But in your believing, when you, again, have enough clarity, you turn around and see that it was God who gave you the ability to believe. It's the same way with this, with this, with this thing that we call repentance. That in, unless God so turned the heart, the heart will never be turned. But God, in turning the heart, now you ask me the question. And the question comes up all the time. If this is the case, why does God demand that which I cannot get, which I cannot give? The very simple answer is this. God is gracious enough To demand of you what you cannot give in order that you might ask of him what you do not have. Do you understand? Do you understand? We we, we see illustrations of this. My, My young friends over there, when you need something from mom and dad, and mom and dad says you need it, what do you do? You ask them for it, don't you? Those of us who are older, when we need something to buy, what do we do? Well, oftentimes we'll go to the bank or or solicit a credit card company, and we'll ask them for that which we don't have. The need exposes what we ask for. That's what God is doing in the gospel. 
And oftentimes we get all confused and say, wait a minute, if, 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 if faith is a gift, how can I act on, my, on my own? If repentance is a gift, how can I work it up in myself? God is showing you what it requires in order that you might know what to ask of God. And so this morning, when you stop and think of this matter of repentance and have you repented, and as you examine yourself, at, and if you see something that's insufficient, then don't be afraid to go to God and say, Father, give me the very repentance that you demand. Put within my hands that which you require of me that I might give to you what you've put in my hands. This is what grace is all about. And so again, these themes of repentance, these themes of faith. So again, in a general way, as I said before, Repentance is an act of the whole soul. Uh, repentance, again, involves this idea of turning from uh, something, turning to something. We'll get into that when we get into our definitions here in a little bit. Faith is that which God commands of all men everywhere. And faith is, excuse me, and, uh, repentance is that which God demands of all men everywhere. And repentance is that which God graciously gives. And we'll take a look at each of these things as we go on. Well, first of all, again, how do we understand repentance? Well, as I said before, repentance is one of the key words of the scripture. And it's simple, in its most simplest terms, it means to turn from sin to turn to God. And while there is more in repentance than this, repentance is never less than that. Do you understand? There's more in repentance than just an outward turn. But, the, but repentance is never less than that. Repentance will always have this element of a turn in life that's observable. We see this in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 7. A wonderful passage of scripture. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So again, repentance is that turn in the life that is observable, a turn in the life that God can see, a turn in the life that God can mark. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let him turn unto God. This is repentance. Repentance is also, again, to see that which God graciously enables. Listen to this passage of Scripture, two passages of Scripture here. Psalm 85, verse, uh, Psalm 85, uh, verse 4 reads as follows, and this, is a, this will help us to uh, understand what I've tried to explain just a minute ago. Psalm 85, verse 4, Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Turn us, O God of our salvation. What is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is asking for that which he cannot do in and of himself. So he's going to God for the grace necessary to do what God commands. And can you, if I can say it this way, can you be simple enough in your faith to do that very thing with God this morning? Say, Father, I know what you demand of me. I know what the inclination of my heart is. I know, sadly I have to say this, I know how appealing sin can still be to my corrupt nature. Will you, by way of your grace, grant to me the turning and the repentance that I need to now hate sin? <clears throat> and so again, what do we do? We solicit God in prayer for these things. Lamentations chapter 5, verse 21. Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. The word turned in the Old Testament, again, is a synonym for repentance. And what is Jeremiah saying here? O Lord, you turn us. You see what our hearts are. Please turn us from our sins, and we indeed shall be turned. And so again, these are the ideas that we see here. 
Biblical repentance involves the mind and the will of the person enabled by God to forsake sin and to cling to Christ as he has offered in the gospel. We see this when the, when the gospel went to the Gentiles. One of the ways in which the apostles kind of summarized the, the work of the gospel among the Gentiles was that they understood that God had granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Here they are evaluating the work of God and they're not saying, hey, aren't we happy that the, that the Gentiles have come to repentance? That would have been a legitimate way of saying it. But biblically, what do they say? They are rejoicing that God granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. Oh, Father, grant to me that which you require of me and may I give to you that which you require. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then God also to the Gentiles has, has, has granted repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. You see, this is a very interesting way in which we understand repentance. You know, Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about a repentance that really doesn't lead to life, but a repentance that just leads to sorrow. And one of the things that you need to understand about true biblical repentance, what some have called evangelical repentance, is that true biblical or evangelical repentance never stops with just the repenting, so to speak. But in the repenting, it sees glimmer of hope. There's a sense in which unbiblical repentance can lead to can lead to very serious psychological despondency because it never sees any hope I don't know if you've ever dealt with people uh, that have this kind of a mindset it's it's very difficult sometimes to deal with that they will be able to affirm with you that God's ability to forgive sinners but they just don't think that God can forgive them and there's a sense in which whatever there is that, that looks like repentance in the biblical form of the word, that's not repentance because repentance always sees the light of the gospel. Repentance always understands that this whole evaluation doesn't end with me. It ends with God's promise in Jesus Christ. And that's why repentance is under life. It's not repentance under despondency. It's not these people are showing up in their basket cases because they don't know what to do with all the baggage they're carrying. No, they've seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ hope for their sins, hope for their souls. And so again, there is this true repentance in this false repentance. Well, repentance has a number of elements and I hope you'll bear with me as I work through each of these things because I think it's important for us to understand what true repentance is and what repentance is not. When you look in the Old Testament, oftentimes you'll see words that are used that express what we would call the emotive element of repentance. We have to be careful with the emotive element of repentance because, as I said before, there are those that we can bring into despondency but never bring them into the hope of the gospel, and we would be doing them more harm than good. But, but repentance does have an emotive element to it. And we see this in passages of Scripture like Job chapter 42, verse 6. And, and I, we know this passage when I read it. It will be familiar to you. Hopefully the sense of it is that which you have identified with at some point in your life. Job 42, verse 6. Job says this, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, here now is Job seeing God. Here is Job seeing sin. But isn't it a wonderful thing to know that in the whole process of God's working and dealing with Job, he doesn't leave him there, does he? Because all true biblical and evangelical repentance always has a glimmer of the hope of the gospel. 
Psalm 38 verse 18 says this, that David says, For I will declare my iniquity. I will be sorry for my sin. I will be sorry for my sin. This is a very important matter, isn't it? How does our sin affect us? How does our sin strike us? Now again, we have to be careful because we've just opened the door for a lot of psychological manipulation if we're not careful. We can just try to press upon people this kind of state of mind that walks around with this grief that knows no relief. And we don't want to do that. But if we, if we preach about repentance, apart from it affecting the soul in, in, in its emotive level. You see, this is what I'm trying to convey. I'm trying to convey that repentance has to reach down to the whole person. There are intellectual aspects of repentance as well. As a matter of fact, when we get into the New Testament, what we find over and over again is that the New Testament word for repentance primarily has to do with that change of mind. And so that when you have this change of mind, you're seeing things in one way. And again, let's use the idea of our sin again. You're seeing things that your sin was not at all a problem for you. It wasn't offensive to God. It wasn't a, a, a problem whatsoever. But now upon the preaching of the gospel, you see your sin in a new light and you change your mind. You have a change of mind. But I've heard, I hate to say this, I've heard presentations of the doctrine of repentance that all stayed in the intellect. None of it seemed to reach down into the, into the emotive elements of people. Now, it could be because if you go back far enough in the, in the preaching of the gospel, and you don't have to go back that far, many kind of dramatic uh, effects were tried, to be, were, were, were tried to be elicited from those who were repenting. So that if there weren't a sufficient amount of tears, that the repentance was somehow insufficient. That's not necessarily true. It may not be in your nature to be very emotive that way. But if repentance doesn't strike at the core of your emotion, and whatever your emotional makeup is, it's not true repentance. But, it, but repentance does really center in on this change of mind. And I have to interact with you with this question. Have you had this change of mind about your sin? Have you had this change of mind where you understand, where you hate your sin, are you ready for this, where you hate your sin not only because you understand that your sin will one day bring you to hell if you don't repent of it, where you you deal with your sin, not only is that what you know you shouldn't do, but you really want to do, but you deal with your sin as that which is primarily an offense against God. Oh, that God would give us that kind of insight. That God would cause us to see His glory and His majesty, His wonder and His splendor, the beauty of His person, the preciousness of his relationship so that when I sin, my biggest fear is offending this God who loves me so. That's a work of grace. That's a work. And again, if I'm asking you these things and you're not able to answer them in the way that you would want to answer them, then go to God in prayer. God will give you the repentance he requires. He is, can I put it this way? He's in that business. He will give you what you need in this regard. And so again, these ideas, the, the emotive element, the, uh, the, uh, the intellectual element. But again, I, as I said before, there's that whole idea of the outward effects of repentance, which is a turning. Another passage of scripture that brings this out, Psalm 80, verse 3, Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Again, this whole idea of the turning. Now, it's interesting that when we look in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, uh, the word that's used for turning there sometimes will be found in the New Testament apart from the word repentance, but the concept of repentance is present. What do I mean by that? That you don't always 
find the word repentance when the concept of repentance is there. So that you'll have a passage of scripture like 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 9, which where, where Paul says this, For they themselves show us what manner of entering we had among you, how that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's repentance. A turning from idols to God. That's what repentance is. And so like what we're seeing here is, again, that repentance is this kind of complete work upon the person intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, all of the aspects of our being are touched in this work of repentance that God brings upon us. So again, this turning away from our sin. Now again, we also have to understand that we see in Scripture, and sadly we see even in human experience, what we have to call um, either either insufficient, incomplete, or flat-out false forms of repentance. Incomplete, insufficient, or flat-out false forms of repentance. What would be an incomplete form of repentance? An incomplete form of repentance would be that we may be emotionally touched, but there is no outward effect in the life. And I, and I fear that we come across this a lot. I fear sometimes that it's very easy to touch somebody at the level of their emotion, maybe even to persuade them at the level of the intellect but never find within their life the real work or fruit of repentance being seen. It's an incomplete repentance. It's a repentance, again, that we need the grace of God to, to help us to deal with. Uh, an insufficient repentance would be along the same lines. A false repentance, what would a false repentance be? Would a false, well, a false repentance would be like the, like the repentance of, of Esau or a repentance of Judas. You remember Judas when he was aware of the evil that he had committed. He, the scripture says he repented. It's interesting that the word that's used there is really a word to, to, to relent. He had all the emotional stirrings that went along with repentance, but that repentance did not was not effective to the saving of a soul. So we have to be aware of these false forms of repentance. That's why I'm saying to you, look, I can't, I'm not, a, and, and you know this, I'm not some kind of maestro up here pulling out from you emotional elements, volitional elements, intellectual elements. The, only the Spirit of God can do that. And if in these categories of what repentance looks like, you see insufficiencies, go to God in prayer. Ask Him to uncover your heart. Ask Him to put within you every grace needed for for the demand of the moment. And again, so we see these things with what repentance is. So again, repentance in all of its elements. It has the intellectual, the emotional, the volitional elements of it. And when we come to repentance, before we move on, one of the things that we have to say is that repentance is not just some, some unusual characteristic Repentance isn't like this little wrinkle within the pages of Scripture that we have to really examine to find. Repentance is all the way through the Scripture. There has been no coming to God apart from repentance. Let the Lord Jesus Christ begin His ministry. And how does He begin it? With repentance. Let the Lord Jesus Christ define His ministry. And how does He he define it? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let the Lord Jesus Christ commission His church. And how does He commission them? Luke chapter 24, verse 47. That repentance and remission of sin should be preached in my name among all nations. So repentance, again, is part and parcel of the gospel. Paul, again, identifying his entire ministry by this idea of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, again, repentance, just an essential element of what gospel preaching is. 
Now, I'm not going to go into any extended detail here, but it's not uncommon that when the concept of repentance is, is examined in any kind of degree, it's not uncommon to find repentance referred to along these two primary categories, that there is an evangelical repentance that leads to eternal life, that leads to faith, and then there is what theologians have sometimes called a legal repentance, which really never moves beyond the outward demands. It never really affects the heart. And I guess if we were to sum up the difference between a legal repentance and an evangelical repentance, and when I say evangelical, I know that I use the word a lot, what I mean by evangelical is that those characteristics that define or describe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that when I speak about evangelical preaching, I'm talking about preaching that emphasizes and prioritizes the proclamation of the gospel wherein God is promising to save sinners through faith. When I talk about an evangelical theology, I'm talking about that theology that gives stress to the proclamation and the reception of the gospel by faith. So it is that idea, it's that word that gives kind of a flavor to, the, to whatever word is being used. So an evangelical repentance is a repentance that leads to eternal life. A legal repentance is a repentance that never leads to eternal life. So again, if I had to distinguish between the two, I would say essentially this, that legal repentance just brings a person, as I said before, into despondency. And I'm telling you, some of you maybe have seen that it is a very sad thing to find a person in spiritual despondency. It is a very sad thing to find a person who is so overwhelmed with the weight of their sin for whatever reason, and we have to include satanic elements here, that Satan is not allowing them to see the glorious light of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So we must make sure that when we talk about repentance, we are not driving men and women to a, to a, to a legal uh, repentance, to a, to, a, to a legalistic repentance. We must make sure that we are moving them to an evangelical repentance. And if a legal repentance leaves the person in despondency, an evangelical repentance will always leave the person with hope. Because they will see in the gospel the promise of God to deal with their situation. And that's why Paul moves on here in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this. There is no preaching of the gospel apart from the preaching of faith, is there? Faith in Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Christian gospel. There is a sense in which if you know nothing else, you must know this, that God saves sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. And so again, what we do is we emphasize the reality of faith. Yes, we bring out the need for repentance, but just as strongly we emphasize the necessity for faith. And so what we see when we come to faith is that we have to deal somewhat along the same lines. I'm not going to go into the same level level of detail because I think faith is a little easier to be understood in our day, but we have to be careful here. If I were to define faith, I could define faith in in somewhat simple terms and somewhat more uh, complex terms. The simple way that I would define faith would be essentially this. Faith is your saying amen to the promise of God. Simple as that. God makes a promise and you believe it. That's what faith is. Now we can get much more detailed there. We can have much more information given. I'll give a little bit more here in, in a minute. But I want you to understand essentially that. In the gospel, God makes a promise to save sinners. In the gospel, God reveals that sinners, sinners need to be saved. In the gospel, there is awareness that God requires repentance in the soul and He offers eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And faith, at the very fundamental level, says, Amen, that's that's what I need. That's the message I need to hear. That message is describing me, and I need what is offered in that message. Faith, very simply that. 
Well, again, when we try to get a little more detailed, what we find by way of faith is that, again, theologians or theologians have, have, uh, have kind of made some divisions here. And, and they've said that faith really always will include an element of knowledge, that there cannot be true faith without facts. That's why the gospel has content to it. That's why the gospel, again, is never that which is, excludes the message of the, the, excuse me, the fact of the message that Jesus of Nazareth lived, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again the third day. First Corinthians chapter 15. Paul makes that very clear. I declared unto you that which I also received, how the Christ that was, died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. Those are the factual elements. Now let me say this. Saving faith will always include the knowledge of that, but the embrace of that as well. Now you can get scholars, religious scholars in our day, and they will not deny that the early church taught that this, this one Jesus of Nazareth lived and was crucified by the Romans, and the church said that he rose again the third day. You understand that's not saving faith. That's not really doing anything to the benefit of the eternal benefit of that individual soul. But you cannot be saved apart from that knowledge. You see, fundamentally... The death of Jesus Christ is not merely an historical issue. It's a theological issue. Did you remember when we read, when Charlie read from uh, uh, um, um, uh, Mark chapter 1, the very first verse, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's theological content. The gospel about the Son of God, not just Jesus of Nazareth. It's a theological assessment made on the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what saving faith involves. It involves this, not only this awareness of facts, but an assessment of the facts. And so not only do you say that you know these things happen, you say, yes, these things are true. I'm not that one who's going around saying, well, yeah, that's what the early Christians believe. That's not what I believe. I remember one time I was, uh, this is years and years ago. I'm still kind of like in the process of, uh, of building my library. And I came across a, uh, a man who was a, I think he was a professor, but you know, at a, at, a, at a relatively small school, may have, may even have been a, a community college, but he was a he was a he was a uh, I, I don't know if he majored in literature, but he had he had it was amazing. He he took me and my my first pastor up into this room that he had, and he had all these first edition works of Jonathan Edwards. It, it, it was like it was it, it was just it was really something to see. And I remember somehow in the course of the conversation, he ended up saying he didn't really believe what Jonathan Edwards, you know, had to say, but he appreciated them for their literary value. And I don't know if I said this or not. I certainly thought this to myself, and I don't know if I said it or not, but I thought or said, you know, that's like getting excited about candy wrappers when you got the candy. The candy is the substance of the stuff. And he's being, he's getting excited about having these, these, these books. And they were, it was impressive to see. And so what I want you to see is that what faith does, faith isn't just taken up with the factuality of the matter. It will never shy away from the factuality of the matter. It will never say that the facts don't matter. See, we get a lot of religious messages that way, don't we? No, the facts really don't matter. The details, no, they do matter. They do matter. And faith always embraces. So, so faith involves the intellect. Our theologians tell us oftentimes that faith also involves the, 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 um, uh, the emotion. And so that when you hear that Jesus Christ died on the cross, it, it isn't just that somebody died on the cross 2,000 years ago. That was relatively common. Did you ever stop to think of what it must have been like on the day that Jesus was crucified? There would have been a whole number of personalities there. Some people, and I've, I've said this before, but when you're know, studying the death of Jesus Christ, for, for, for the Roman soldiers, and I hate to say it this way, but the death of Jesus Christ was the entertainment for the day. That's all it was. They were mocking him. They were basically having a good old time at his expense. 
He was the entertainment for the day. Some walked by and maybe didn't think any, anything of it. Others were there, and again, they were condemning him. But for some, they looked at the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, and it meant for them the payment and the atonement of their sins. That's where we see this emotional element with faith. Faith joins itself at a very real level with the propositions that the Scripture makes. And so again, faith involving the intellect, faith involving the emotions, but then faith also again involving the the will. And that's what we see over and over again in the Scripture. That's why faith always looks like something. That's why faith is always discernible. That's why you might not be able to put faith in a cup, but you will always see faith in action, won't you? Faith in that regard is very much like love. You can't pour it into a cup, but you certainly see it, don't you? And so what we see here then is this whole stress on the reality of faith. Faith very simply is what? It's you saying amen to the promise of God. It's you hearing in the gospel that God loved you enough to send Jesus Christ to die for your sins. It's the response of saying amen. That's the message I need. But if you want to understand that it may be something of a, of a, of a more thorough level, you begin to understand the whole person is involved here. That the facts of the gospel are important. That my emotional attachment to them should be real. That my volitional commitment to them should be very real as well. And so again, faith and repentance and faith taking these kind of a, taking this kind of a, uh, uh, this this kind of a of, of a manifestation. And so what that leaves us with then is this: it shows us what the true nature of preaching is and of gospel preaching is. And I have to ask you the question: Is this what you are hearing? When you are hearing the gospel being preached in our day, are you hearing in the preaching of the gospel the necessity to repent, the necessity to believe? It must be in the message somewhere. It must be there in its themes. If I can use an illustration, it must be in the aroma, if not in the actual meat, so to speak. Repentance and faith must be there. Secondly, is that the gospel that you've believed? Have you believed the gospel which, which presses upon sinners the necessity to repent? And you have to understand that every level of our age we need this, young or old, you need to hear this. At every level of our Christian walk we need to hear this. There's a sense in which we say to sinners as sinners, you need to repent of your sin. And that repentance of that, that particular sin is essentially their estrangement from God, their alienation from God. They're preferring themselves over God. It's that sin of unbelief that they must repent of. But my brothers and sisters, you and I all know how we as believers need this ongoing work of repentance, don't we? What a mess we will make of our professed Christian life if our Christian life isn't marked by repentance. But faith as well. Look, we're not, listen, we're, we're not here just to, just, just, just to bear down on sinners or to hear over and over again that there's no hope, that, that, uh, that, there's, that there's nothing uh, uh, you know, that, that, that you can do one way or another. God gives great hope in the gospel. And so again, have you embraced again not only the gospel of repentance, have you embraced the gospel of faith as well? So these things must be present in our preaching. And then that leads us again to how we apply this. Well, the way you apply this is that you ask the Spirit of God to first and foremost make these realities true in your life. That He has granted to you repentance and He has given to you the gift of faith. Secondly, what it means is this, is that you ask God to give you the wisdom to when you talk to your neighbors and your friends about the gospel, 
that you are able to talk about the gospel, bringing in the need for repentance. Again, it's a challenge in our day. People want to hear about faith, but they don't want to hear about the need to repent from sin. There is no preaching of the gospel apart from repentance. It's as simple as that. Paul could have given great emphasis, as I said before, to the other things that we see here in Ephesians, excuse me, in the book of Acts. Great miracles. The pouring out of the Spirit of God. The city was in an uproar when Paul left. But what does, what does Paul use to summarize his entire ministry to the Ephesians? I cease not to preach repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, may that be the message of Nosset Baptist Church. May that be the message that's known. May that be the message that you take with you. May that be the message that defines your life and my life. Let's pray.